0: Tonight we're looking at 1 Corinthians 7 in its entirety, it's 40 verses, I apologise if that feels a bit rushed, a bit compressed. Um, But then the subject is is marriage and singleness, and those are topics in which I can guarantee probably to upset more than half of you very easily. So I'll just get the pain over with in one service, okay? And uh, (laughs) you only have one thing to forgive me for, so let's have the first of our readings from 1 Corinthians 7.
1: Now for the matters you wrote about, says Paul, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband, in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, for each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Nonsense circumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave When you were called, don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers... Each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God has called him to. Paul continues Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none, those who mourn as if they did not, Those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting on in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God.
0: Marriage. It's traditionally been defined as the lifelong union between a man and a woman entered into by mutual and public consent. As we all know, the government recently passed legislation which approves in principle the right of gay couples to marry so that marriage is no longer or will no longer <coughs> just be between male and female. Apparently the first recorded mention of same-sex marriage occurred in ancient Rome and took place there without too much debate until Christianity became the official religion. In 1989, Denmark was the first post-Christianity nation legally to recognise same-sex marriage. It is a controversial issue. I rather wish I'd known that the government was going to tackle this a couple of weeks before I was going to preach on marriage I could safely have ignored it but I don't feel that I, I can um, so I'm going to skirt round it a little bit why can't gay people just have a civil partnership is a question that's often asked um, and, and it, it always set up as a kind of replacement for marriage I guess I mean those who, who advocate the extension of marriage to, to same-sex couples say well that they are actually at root quite different things a civil partnership is designed to offer legal and financial protection to, to somebody else you are sharing a house with. So in terms of sharing benefits and pensions and the provision of the property if one of them dies and so on and so forth, it extends those legal rights to the person who is the civil partner. Uh, and the civil partnership is... is the, 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 the key point of the civil partnership is signing the documents, which recognises that you both enter into the partnership with its financial obligations and responsibilities and protections. You can tack on to that all sorts of ceremonies about promises and vows and bits and pieces like that, but the essence of it is signing a document uh, that protects each other's financial position because you have this partnership that you wish to enter into from a legal point of view. A marriage is different as much as at the core of the marriage lies not the signing of a document with its legal and financial implications, it is the core commitments... That you make to each other in terms of the vows that you say to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. You promise to love, comfort, honour, and keep each other, forsaking all others, to be faithful to each other as long as you both shall live. And it's those vows, rather than signing a bit of paper, that are the binding elements in a marriage. And I guess the view is that same-sex couples want to have that same binding ceremony in terms of the vows they make to each other, rather than that just being tacked on to signing a bit of paper with its financial implications. You read those words, you think, well, you know, why couldn't actually a couple who are devoted to each other say those things to each other, even if they were of the same sex, and not mean them? Are there things in the vows that make them totally inappropriate? The same-sex couples to say to each other. Yet yeah, the Christian view of marriage does draw on Jesus' words to the religious leaders of his day when they asked him about divorce. And he quoted the creation story in Genesis and points out that it says there, God made us male and female, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And in Genesis, that verse comes on the back of the story of God looking for a suitable partner for Adam, because it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, even though he was in what was a perfect environment. None of the animals God had made really fitted the bill, so God takes one of Adam's ribs and makes a wife for him. And when Adam sees Eve, he is thrilled to encounter someone who is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And the story explains the mutual and sexual attraction between men and women on the basis that they were originally one. Eve was originally part of Adam. And she was fashioned from Adam's rib to, be, to become a counterpart to Adam. And sexual intercourse reunites two individuals and makes them one flesh again. And in that, sexual intercourse becomes the possibility for a couple to have a child and so become one flesh in a deeper and more meaningful way again. This is an unashamedly positive view of sexual love, which is reflected in the erotic poetry of the Song of Songs. This coming together of male and female in sexual intercourse was arguably one of the better bits of God's design of human beings. And there are aspects of that that can't really be reflected in same-sex relationships. There is no possibility of reuniting what was originally one, and making two one again in that same sense. You can't get that complementarity in in the same sense as there is in the Genesis story. Nor is the possibility of having children. And if you make the Genesis story foundational to what marriage is really all about, and particularly, I guess, if you take it as a a factual record of how God did make Adam and Eve, and that was his blueprint for for, for male and female and marriage and relationships, then you are going to have understandably legitimate problems with the government saying, well, marriage can apply equally to couples of the same sex as it can to men and women. Because if your image of marriage is defined by that story in Genesis and what was originally one being separated and joining together again, you aren't going to be able to relate that to same-sex relationships. So a lot of it boils down, actually, to, to the story in Genesis and how foundational that is to marriage. I would want to say though that whatever the government does in terms of redefining marriage, a good heterosexual marriage is still going to be a good heterosexual marriage no matter what the government says about other marriages. And if all this debate about what marriage entails begins to focus people's minds on what marriage really should be about, beyond the fairy tale wedding and the very expensive honeymoon, then that may not necessarily be a bad thing. Perhaps. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses the church on the, issue of the, on the issue of marriage and singleness. And many people think with good reason that the saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman was actually a quotation from their letter to him. They wrote to him about all sorts of things. And he says, now concerning the matters about which he wrote, many people think in inverted commas, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He's not saying, this is my point of view. He's saying, this is what you suggested to me. And the rest of the chapter is his response to that particular point of view that they are advancing. For himself, as a single man, Paul unashamedly advocates celibacy. And unless we suspect him of rank hypocrisy, there is no reason to suppose he did not practice what he preached. But the problem in Corinth may have been that there were those who were married who were somehow wondering whether married with christians is this whole sex thing really just off limits a bit for us now if my body is a temple of the holy spirit doesn't all that kind of messy business of sexual intercourse defile it in some kind of way shouldn't we just keep ourselves pure and holy and separate and there are those who think that it was actually some of the women in corinth who were beginning to to kind of get a bit above themselves perhaps and to lock the bedroom door and to tell their husbands where to go which might have been why the husbands were going elsewhere down the road to fulfil their sexual needs. And Paul says, no! It is right for a woman to have a husband, for a husband to have his wife. Don't deny each other, except perhaps for a short period of time, by mutual consent, so that you can pray. He makes it clear that although he himself prefers celibacy and singleness and all that kind of stuff, within marriage, sexual intercourse is entirely right and proper. Later in the letter, he talks, you know, about the woman being the glory of a man. And I always think glory is a bit of a wow word. You think about the glory of God, you go wow when you look at God. The woman is the glory of the man. A woman has the capacity to make a man go wow, doesn't she, fellas? Let's be honest. Yeah, okay. (laughs) But it is a wow word. A sense in which the woman is the glory of the man. It makes the man go, aren't you wonderful? Aren't you wonderful? And that's how it should be. But that is something counter-cultural at the time for Paul to say about marriage. Orvid, the Latin poet, held that there could be no erotic pleasure between husband and wife because it was a relationship of duty. The purpose of marriage was generally perceived as being for the procreation of legitimate heirs who would inherit and continue the name, property and sacred rights of the family. That's what marriage was. Uh, until fairly recently, that's what marriage was in this country as well. Forget all the stuff about romantic love and you know, spending each other in each other's company, happily ever after. Marriage was done between the families. That's a good family. She's a good catch. You'll have plenty of children marrying her. Sorted. It was just arranged and you got on with it. Ironically, it was a kind of legal arrangement for the safeguarding of property and finances and all the other kind of stuff that a civil partnership pretty much is today. But marriage has changed to become evolved in all this idea of mutual love and support. And it's Christianity actually that has that dimension to it there. That it should be about this relationship between husband and wife and their delight in each other. Masonius the Stoic argued that sexual or erotic desire could be justified within marriage only when it was for the purpose of begetting children. Even within marriage, if you had sex just for pleasure, there was something unlawful or unnatural about that. And all that kind of spills over then into into the Roman Catholic idea of original sin from Augustine who said original sin is passed down from parent to child because when when parents have sex they they lose self-control and there's no amount of pleasure in it and that taints the whole process and original sin is passed down from generation to generation because of that concupiscence, because of that desire because of that loss of control that's the problem he said. So technically if you could do it without enjoying it at all Purely for the purpose of having children, that was the best way. But that's not the biblical picture of how sexual intercourse should work. Paul affirms its place within marriage as part of God's purpose and intention. And within a relationship of of total love and total commitment, there is the idea that there should be that complete self-giving to somebody else without reservation or holding back, and being able to delight in each other in that way. Paul even goes so far as to say that the wife doesn't own her own body. Her body belongs to her husband. And the husband doesn't own his own body. His body belongs to the wife. If you're married... Paul says you own, you have authority over the body of the person you're married to. That's quite a scary thought, actually, isn't it? It adds a whole new dimension to those words in the marriage service. All that I am, I gift you. You are handing over the rights over your own body to somebody else. So you better be pretty sure that this is a person you can trust. That's the point. You better be sure this is a person who will repay your complete trust of them with 100% love for you and for your well-being. You know, want to know why Christians have this hang-up about sex only being for marriage? Look no further than the high view represented here of just what being one flesh entails. It is a complete handing over.